Third part of chapter 7 of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roland Magyar. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Patriotism, part 3. The symbol for country may be a man and may become an idol. At the birth of society, instincts existed, needful to the animal, and having a certain glorious impetuosity about them, which prompted common action and speech, and a public morality, and men were led to construct myths that might seem to justify this cooperation. Paternal authority could easily suggest one symbol for social loyalty. The chief, probably a venerable and imperious personage, could be called a father and obeyed as a natural master. His command might by convention be regarded as an expression of the common voice, just as the father's will is by nature the representative of his children's interest. Again, the members of each community were distinguished from their enemies by many a sign and custom. These signs and customs might also become a graphic symbol for the common life. Both these cases suggest how easily a symbol takes the place of its object and becomes an idol. If the symbol happens to be a man, there are natural human sentiments awakened by him. And whatever respect his character or gifts may inspire, whatever charm there may be in his person, whatever graciousness he may add to his official favors or commands, increase immensely his personal ascendancy. A king has a great opportunity to make himself loved. This scope given to private inclination is what, to ordinary fancy, makes royalty enviable. Few envy its impersonal power and historic weight. Yet, if a king were nothing but a man surrounded by flatterers, who was cheered when he drove abroad, there would be little stability in monarchy. A king is really the state's hinge and center of gravity, the point where all private and party ambitions meet and, in a sense, are neutralized. It is not easy for factions to overturn him, for every other force in the state will instinctively support him against faction. His elevation above everyone, the identity of his sober interests with those of the state at large, is calculated to make him the people's natural representative. His word has therefore a genuine authority, and his ascendancy, not being invidious, is able to secure internal peace, even when not enlightened enough to ensure prosperity or to avoid foreign wars. Accordingly, whenever a monarchy is at all representative, time has an irresistible tendency to increase its prestige. The king is felt to be the guardian as well as the symbol of all public greatness. Meantime, a double dislocation is possible here. Patriotism may be wholly identified with personal loyalty to the sovereign, while the sovereign himself, instead of making public interest his own, may direct his policy so as to satisfy his private passions. The first confusion leads to a conflict between tradition and reason, the second to the ruin of either the state or the monarchy. In a word, a symbol needs to remain transparent and to become adequate, failing in either respect, it misses its function. Feudal representation sensitive but partial. The feudal system offers perhaps the best illustration of a patriotism wholly submerged in loyalty. The sense of mutual obligation and service was very clear in this case. The vassal in swearing fealty knew perfectly well what sort of bargain he was striking. A feudal government, while it lasted, was accordingly highly responsive and responsible. If false to its calling, it could be readily disowned, for it is easy to break an oath and to make new military associations, especially where territorial units are small and their links accidental. But this personal, conscious, and jealous subordination of man to man constituted a government of insignificant scope. Military functions were alone considered, and the rest was allowed to shift for itself. Feudalism could have been possible only in a barbarous age when the arts existed on sufferance and lived on by little tentative resurrections. The feudal lord was a genuine representative of a very small part of his vassal's interest.
This slight bond sufficed, however, to give him a great prestige and to stimulate in him all the habits and virtues of a responsible master, so that in England, where vestiges of feudalism abound to this day, there is an aristocracy not merely titular. Monarchical representation comprehensive but treacherous. A highly concentrated monarchy presents the exactly opposite phenomenon. Here subordination is involuntary and mutual responsibility largely unconscious. On the other hand, the scope of representation is very wide and the monarch may well embody the whole life of the nation. A great court, with officers of state and a standing army, is sensitive to nothing so much as to general appearances and general results. The invisible forces of industry, morality, and personal ambition that really sustain the state are not studied or fomented by such a government, so that when these resources begin to fail, the ensuing catastrophes are a mystery to everybody. The king and his ministers never cease wondering how they can be so constantly unfortunate. So long, however, as the nation's vital force is unspent and taxes and soldiers are available in plenty, a great monarchy tends to turn those resources to notable results. The arts and sciences are encouraged by the patronage of men of breeding and affairs. They are disciplined into a certain firmness and amplitude which artists and scholars, if left to themselves, are commonly incapable of. Life is refined. Religion itself, unless fanaticism be too hopelessly in the ascendant, is coordinated with other public interests and compelled to serve mankind. A liberal life is made possible. The imagination is stimulated and set free by that same brilliant concentration of all human energies which defeats practical liberty. At the same time, luxury and all manner of conceits are part and parcel of such a courtly civilization and its best products are the first to be lost, so that very likely the dumb forces of society, hunger, conscience, and malice, will not do any great harm when they destroy those treacherous institutions which, after giving the spirit a momentary expression, had become an offense to both spirit and flesh. Observers at the time may lament the collapse of so much elegance and greatness, but nature has no memory and brushes away without a qualm her card castle of yesterday, if a new constructive impulse possesses her today. Impersonal symbols no advantage. Where no suitable persons are found to embody the state's unity, other symbols have to be chosen. Besides the gods and their temples, there are the laws which may, as among the Jews and Mohammedans, become as much a fetish as any monarch, and one more long-lived, or else some traditional policy of revenge or conquest, or even the country's name or flag, may serve this symbolic purpose. A trivial emblem, which no thinking man can substitute for the thing signified, is not so great an advantage as at first sight it might seem. For in the first place, men are often thoughtless and adore words and symbols with a terrible earnestness. While on the other hand, an abstract token, because of its natural insipidity, can be made to stand for anything, so that patriotism, when it uses pompous words alone for its stimulus, is very apt to be a cloak for private interests, which the speaker may sincerely conceive to be the only interest in question. Patriotism, not self-interest, save to the social man whose aims are ideal. The essence of patriotism is thus annulled, for patriotism does not consist in considering the private and sordid interest of others as well as one's own, by a kind of sympathy which is merely vicarious or epidemic selfishness. Patriotism consists rather in being sensitive to a set of interests which no one could have had if he had lived in isolation, but which accrue to men conscious of living in society, and in a society having the scope and history of a nation. It was the vice of liberalism to believe that common interests covered nothing but the sum of those objects which each individual might pursue alone, whereby science, religion, art, language, and nationality itself would cease to be matters of public concern and would appeal to the individual merely as instruments. The welfare of a flock of sheep is secured if each is well fed and watered. 
but the welfare of a human society involves the partial withdrawal of every member from such pursuits to attend instead to memory and to ideal possessions. These involve a certain conscious continuity and organization in the state not necessary for animal existence. It is not for man's interest to live unless he can live in the spirit, because his spiritual capacity, when unused, will lacerate and derange even his physical life. The brutal individualist falls into the same error into which despots fall when they declare war out of personal pique or tax the people to build themselves a pyramid, not discerning their country's interest, which they might have appropriated from interests of their own which no one else can share. Democracies, too, are full of patriots of this lordly stripe, men whose patriotism consists in joy at their personal possessions and in desire to increase them. The resultant of general selfishness might conceivably be a general order, but though intelligent selfishness, if universal, might suffice for good government, it could not suffice for nationality. Patriotism is an imaginative passion, and imagination is ingenuous. The value of patriotism is not utilitarian, but ideal. It belongs to the free forms of society and ennobles a man not so much because it nerves him to work or to die, which the basest passions may also do, but because it associates him in working or dying with an immortal and friendly companion, the spirit of his race. This he received from his ancestors tempered by their achievements and may transmit to posterity qualified by his own. End of chapter 7, part 3.